was wondering if I would fill the pulpit this morning, and, um, and so my wife come down the steps, and I'm frantically going through some, some old stuff, some old sermons that I had preached at, at different churches at times, and, you know, and half praying and half searching, and just really a mess, and my wife's like, you okay, what's going on? And I said, well, quite honestly, I'm kind of in a panic. I said, Wendy just called, wants me to, Tim needs somebody to fill the pulpit, he's not feeling well, and... And, and she must have went upstairs and told the kids, you know, pray for your dad, and, and he's kind of a mess. And and because uh, my son come down, and he's like, pressure's on, dad. <laughs> to, to which I replied, uh, you know what, Colin, uh, you know, um, I, don't, I don't have to make God look good this morning. God already looks good. And, and so it's just my goal this morning to, to remind those folks of that. Um, to which my wife then replied, well, God may look good, but you don't. So figure out what you're doing because you need to shower. Uh, <laughs> which was also true. But I am in, in desperate need of, of prayer this morning. And, and so let's, let's just go before the, the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, God, you are the King of kings, and you are Lord of lords, and you are in control. And, and I just put my faith in that this morning, God, that, that you are sovereign and that you will do what you do. God, I pray that indeed that you would just take me out of this equation and that, that the folks here this morning at Big Woods Bible Church would not hear from a man, but that they would hear from you, that your Holy Spirit would just speak. Um, God, I confess that, that the nerves I probably feel are, are, are more my own pride and not wanting to look like a moron th- than they are in just preaching the gospel. And so God, I just pray now in the next 35 minutes that, that you would help me remind those under my voice that, that you are a good God and, and that you're, you're the only God who can save us from our sins and, and that, that you did that by sending your son Jesus to pay the penalty that was ours, to live the perfect life that we couldn't live, and to die the death that we couldn't avoid, God. God, let that message resonate this morning. We love you. We pray for Pastor Tim. Would you touch him this morning and and just heal him, God? I pray for Wendy as she ministers to him as well. Bring him back to us this week and, and next Sunday, Lord. In your son's name, amen. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to the 15th chapter of Luke? As I was pondering, you know, how to remind you best uh, how God looks good, I think one of my favorite places in Scripture where we see the goodness of our God is in the story of the prodigal son. And so that's where I want to go this morning. When you find yourself in Luke 15, you're going to realize there are, in fact, three stories there in Luke 15. All are very similar. The first parable depicts a a lost sheep. The second parable depicts a lost coin. And the third, a lost son. And it's the third parable that will be our focus this morning. This is best known. It is called the prodigal son story, the parable of the prodigal son. And it's probably, arguably, one of the best known parables that, that Jesus has ever told. It's preached from every pulpit and taught in every Sunday school classroom. Even folks outside the church, even folks outside the evangelical realm, those who have never set foot inside a church building are are familiar with this story. But I'm convinced of this. If they truly knew what the parable was about, if they truly understood this story, they would no longer be prodigals themselves. Most people know this story. They know that it details a lost son who, who after squandering all of his inheritance, is welcomed back home again by his father. 
But what many don't understand is the parable is about more than just this lost son who returns home. In fact, it's really about two sons. One who squanders his inheritance and returns home, and it's about another son, a religious son, who stays home. But despite all of that, neither son is the main focus of this story. You see, the main character of this story is the father. For it's the father's reaction to each son that captivates the hearts and minds of listeners. And and I am convinced this morning that if the world out there knew more of this story than just the title, if they truly knew about the love of this father that we're going to read about, who so freely welcomes all who turn to him, what a difference it would make in their lives. Might I also say this, church, might I also say this, that if, if we as Christians, if we as a church, at times acted less like the second son and more like the father, what a difference it would be in this church and what a greater difference we would make in this community. And so I hope you have your Bibles open to Luke 15. The, the parable we're going to read is in verses 11 through 32. But, but I first want to read verses 1 through 3 just to, to set the scene, to set the stage of the audience for Jesus' parable here. And so I'm going to begin in 1 through 3 and then jump to 11 to 32. Verses 1 through 3 in Luke 15 say, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Just a few things to notice very quickly here at the beginning of chapter 15. We see the main groups of people whom Jesus is speaking to. His audience for this parable that we're going to talk about, the parable of the lost son, is really kind of twofold. There's tax collectors and sinners. And it certainly makes sense, after all, that those who need to hear the parable of the lost son would be tax collectors and sinners. That makes sense. Who better to hear of a father welcoming sinners home than sinners themselves? And, and we need to realize that you know tax collectors were, were the scum of the earth at the time. They, they were, most of them were out for personal gain. They, they were regarded as, as outcasts in society. They were expelled even from the synagogues, tax collectors were. And it doesn't give us many details about who the, the sinners were here, but, but my study Bible alludes to the fact that they're notoriously evil people and those who, who rejected the Mosaic law. And so it does seem like they're a good audience for the story. But the audience doesn't end there. For we read in verse 2, we realize there's another group of people present to hear the parable, those being the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes. And we find them complaining to each other in the background before the parable begins. The, the Pharisees and the scribes, are, they're, they're concerned about Jesus always hanging around sinners. Not just hanging around them, but, but eating with them. That was a really huge deal back then. To, to break bread with someone meant that you, you accepted them. It meant that you were their friend. The Pharisees were, were bitter that Jesus would, would even consider talking to tax collectors and sinners, much less breaking bread with them. You, you see, in the Pharisees' eyes, the... Such people rejected the teachings of the law, and they, were, they weren't even worthy to be around. And before you condemn the Pharisees and, and teachers of the law for their thoughts, you, you need to understand their perspective. Put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees and, and scribes. The, you see, the Pharisees were the self-appointed protectors of the law. They, they, they prided themselves on, on keeping the law. They, they, they kept every minute detail of the Old Testament law. They fasted two times per week. They, they, they tithe the tenth of everything they had right down to their spices. They, they even counted their steps on the Sabbath day so as to, to not violate the day of rest, the Pharisees did. 
Many of the Pharisees were, were called scribes. They were teachers of the law. And, and these scribes were, were basically the Jewish scholars of the day. They, they knew everything about the Old Testament law. In fact, the, the scribes, I've heard that the scribes had memorized the entire Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they had memorized. Have you ever read through Numbers? Have you ever made it through? They had it memorized. This just gives us a glimpse as to the Pharisees' thoughts. They, they, the Pharisees despised Jesus for associating with those who didn't uphold this law that they loved. I mean, what does, what does this guy Jesus think he's doing? Socializing and eating with tax collectors and sinners. How, how can they trample our law like that? How dare he eat with them? Quite a diverse crowd. The, the vilest of sinners and the so-called religious elite are the audience for Jesus' parable. And so now that we understand the audience, let's go to verse 11 and begin reading. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the, his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father, father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put, put a ring on his hand and, and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for the son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard, he heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But the son was, was angry and refused to go in. And so his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son... You're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so as I mentioned before, the, the father has two sons, the youngest of which approaches the father, and he says, Father, give me my share of the estate. In other words, this younger son is, is asking for his inheritance. And, and please understand, this is no small request. You see, upon the father's death, 
the, the older son was entitled to uh, twice what the younger son was. And so allow the math teacher side of me to come out for a moment. If there are two sons and the father's dividing his inheritance and the older son gets twice, then he, the, the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance and the younger son would get one-third of that inheritance. And this was a highly unusual request for two reasons. Number one, the, the father would surely have to sell off property, sell possessions in order to liquefy a third of all his assets. I mean, unless he had enough silver and gold lying around to, to, that amounted to a third of his worth, he would have to sell material possessions to do this. And number two, more importantly, the, the second reason this was an unusual request is that the father was not dead. Of the two, the second is certainly worse for the, for the father to swallow. For, for in fact, what the younger son is asking, in, in asking for his share of the estate, it's almost as if the younger son was telling the father, I wish you were dead. Father, I, I no longer want to be part of this family. I don't want to live under your headship any longer. I, I wish you were dead so I could get what's coming to me. That's what we're seeing here in the text. Those of you with children, just, just imagine this. Billy comes home one day out of the blue and he, he says, hand it over. I want everything that's coming to me. I mean, I was hoping you would die, so I didn't have to do it this way, but, but I'm over this family. I'm over your household rules. Whatever you have to do to get it, withdraw money from the bank, cash out your retirement fund, sell the car, sell a kidney. I don't care. I want my money because I'm out of here. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me right now? You can almost sense the thought of the Pharisees who are listening. Because they're the same as yours. Come on, Father, are you going to let him talk to you like that? Surely you're going to put that boy in his place, straighten that boy out, make it clear he better never make such a request again. But that's not what the father does, is it? No, the father says he humbles himself and gives the boy his desired inheritance. Picking up again in verse 13, it says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living. Verse 14 makes it clear just how reckless. It says, wild and extravagant living. Verse 14 begins, and when he had spent everything, a third of all the father's accrued wealth, gone. And we don't know exactly how the money was spent, but I'm sure your minds can conjure up a picture of what wild living looks like. Later in the story, the older brother alludes to prostitutes. Surely his, he lived a life of excess. Just think of the name of the story, prodigal son. Prodigal means wasteful, reckless, uncontrolled, extravagant. Someone who lives without thought of consequences of his own actions. And we know this to be true because in the same verse, verse 14, where it says he spent everything, it goes on to tell of a severe famine hitting the land. And, and this once carefree son now finds himself in need. In, in fact... He's in such a bad way that this young Jewish son has, has no other choice than to work for a pig farmer feeding the man's pigs. Understand the, the, the context here. Fe- feeding pigs is the ultimate, uh, ultimate insult for a Jew. Jews viewed pigs as unclean animals. They were forbidden from eating them or even touching their carcasses. But when you're starving, you'll do anything. And this son was starving. Verse 16 says he, he longed to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He was so hungry that he longed for pig food. 
The pods here are, are the, the seeds of what's called the carob tree, which aren't even edible for humans yet. He longed to fill his stomach with them. This youngest son went from being wealthy and living with reckless abandon to desiring the food of the lowliest of animals. Yet at the end of verse 16, it says, no one gave him anything. The young son is defeated, so much so that he begins to regret his decision to leave home. Verse 17 says, but when he came to himself. Other versions say, when he came to his senses. Isn't that like many of us? We have to learn the hard way. We have to wait until we hit rock bottom before we seek help. Man, if you, if you knew the number of times in my own life that my own stubbornness has led me to a similar place as, as this young man, I learn lessons the hard way. More times than I can count, I've, I've looked back on situations and, and said, you know, I wish I would have listened. If I only would have listened, I wouldn't be in this mess I'm in. I thought I knew best, but I was wrong. The grass wasn't greener. The momentary pleasure wasn't worth it. If I could just have it to do over again, I would choose differently. Have you ever been there? Regretting the choices you've made? Desiring to have made better decisions? Have, have you ever been to that dark, dark place where, where even the pigsty looks good when compared with your squandered past? Have you ever been to that place where there's, there's nowhere to turn and, and nothing to do except to humble yourself and beg for mercy? Because that's where we find the young man in our story. At the end of himself. With not a penny to spare. Starving to death in a pig pen. Having turned his back on the only people in the world who loved him. And his only option is to pick himself up out of the muck, out of the mire, out of the pig stench. And to go and beg for mercy. In verse 18, it says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. And he arose and he came to his father. Again, put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisees. Uh, upon hearing Jesus tell this part of the story, you, you can almost see the Pharisees like wringing their hands. This is where the story gets good, right? This is where the son goes back and grovels to the father, and the father lays into him for being disobedient. This is where the father's finally going to get his revenge. The father's going to get the opportunity to tell that wayward son, Ha! I told you so! I told you that the grass wouldn't be greener. And then after that father puts the young son in his place, you, you know what the Pharisees were thinking next. What's the father going to do? What terms is he going to lay down in order that the young son makes restitution to get back into this family? Like, well, what's the agreement going to look like? What's it going to take for this father to welcome this son back home who has squandered everything? How many hours would that young son have to work to gain back his inheritance? How great would the young son's sacrifice have to be before the, the father could even begin to respect him again and trust him again? You, you see the Pharisees hanging on every word of Jesus as they, as they waited with great expectation to hear of the immeasurable cost to be paid back by this young son in order to be welcomed back into the family. But what happens next is my favorite part of the story. Verse 20. It says, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him 
and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. This, this verse is everything to this story. It's the, the climax of the story, if you will. See the story unfold here. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him. L- listen, friends, you, you, you don't see a long way off if you're not actively looking. You, you don't see a long way off if you aren't actively seeking. The father doesn't see his son coming from a long way off if the father himself isn't expectantly waiting and searching. What a picture we see here in the scripture. The father's been waiting for so long for this day. For the very moment the young son left, the father's been imagining this day, awaiting his young son's return, and the day is finally here. And while the son is still a long way off, in the distance, the father sees him. And what other choice does the father have but to run? He doesn't walk. He runs. The the Bible says he runs to his son. Friends, Jewish men didn't run. This father runs. And and he runs to his son. And upon reaching him, he throws his arms around him. And he, he embraces him. And he even kisses him. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? This son who at one time wished his father was dead? Who squandered all of his inheritance? Who who surely reeked of pig stench? Has returned and the father not only runs to him, but embraces him and kisses him? Upon hearing this part of the parable, I I know the Pharisees were floored. Are, Are you for real, Jesus? What kind of father is this? I'm sure they absolutely could not believe their ears. Of course, I'm not sure why. They had just listened to Jesus preach the first two parables of Luke 15 about a lost sheep and a lost coin, and they both ended the same way. The lost sheep is found by a shepherd who went looking. The, the lost coin is found by its owner who would not give up searching. The lost son was found when the father, seeing him a long way off, runs to him and hugs him and kisses him. I can remember when I was a young boy, my mom took my brother and sister and I to, to New York City, and one of the places we visited were the enormous twin towers of the World Trade Center buildings that fell in 9-11. And I don't remember the f- number of floors that were in those buildings, but I do remember getting on the elevator as a young child and just seeing buttons that were as tall as I am in, in those elevators. And, and I just remember people being everywhere, just like shoulder to shoulder, and it's just crazy busy. And, and what happened next is a parent's worst nightmare. My brother, who was probably like six or seven at the time, became separated from us. And he just like accidentally wandered off, and then it turns out he took an escalator to a different floor that we were even on. And I don't remember the exact details, but what I do remember is this. I have never seen my mother so frantic and so driven to find something in all of her life. Every second that ticked by was agonizing. She longed to see my brother again, to wrap him in her arms and embrace him like never before. My, my, my mom left my sister and I with our aunt, and she frantically searched for my brother. And, and I just remember so many people being everywhere and hustling and bustling and, and most oblivious to what's even going on at all. And, but then suddenly everything changed. For, through that crowd, my mom emerged with my brother in her arms in this tight grasp. I'll never forget that grasp that she had around him. Wrapped her arms around my brother as if he had been gone for years. It was probably in reality a couple of minutes. But to a mother who's frantically searching, 
Seconds become minutes, and minutes seem like hours. When I read the story of the prodigal son, I I think back to that picture of my own mother in the World Trade Center, searching and running and embracing the son that she had lost. Continuing in verse 21, it says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 21 is, is where the son gives the father his apology that he has discussed back in verse 18. But there's one difference. There's one difference between verse 18's apology and verse 21's apology. He never utters the last part. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, now I don't know this for sure. This is just me thinking. But I, I can't help but think that he didn't mention about being one of his father's hired men. Because before he could get it out of his mouth, his father interrupts him. Go to verse 22. The father exclaims, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And get a, get a ring and put it on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Wow. What, what more is there to say about such unconditional love? What, what more is there to say about such mercy and about such grace? I, I've got to tell you, I'd, I'd like to think that, that I have unconditional love and forgiveness and mercy and grace for my children. But I don't know that I would have reacted this way. Sure, I would have ran. Sure, I would have embraced. I might have even offered up a kiss. But after that, look out. I I mean, let me play out my reaction uh, to my prodigal son returning home. Oh, oh my son, I'm so glad you're back. Let me take a look at you. Give me a hug. I love you. I love you. I love you. Boy, (laughs) what were you thinking? How could you do this to your mother and me? How could you do this to your family? I I told you the grass wasn't greener. I I tried to tell you that your way was not the best. Come on, let's let's sit down and let's talk about this. Let's talk over what you did. Let's let's talk about how much you hurt me and, and how we can work on fixing our broken relationship. That's what I would do. I'd sit down, I'd sit that boy down, and I'd have that tough love conversation. And it wouldn't be the Dr. Phil type. It would be like the John Wayne Toon Guns and Blazing type. You know what I mean? But that's not the reaction of the father in our story, is it? The, the father doesn't even acknowledge the son's apology. He's too concerned with getting things in order for the big party. Quick, bring my best robe, put it on him. Hurry, get my ring, put it on my son's finger. Sandals, get sandals and put them on my son's feet. And and after you're done with that, fire up the barbecue and kill the fattened calf because we're going to party. My lost son has come home. We're going to celebrate. He was lost, but now he's found. Friends, there's no tough love speech from this father. There's no let's sit down and talk this over speech from this father. What does the father do? Seeing his son, whose body has to be tattered from the wild binge, and weak from starvation, and, and, and certainly reeking of pig stench, the father says, get, get my best robe. Cover him with it. You, you know the, the one, the, the one that denotes a look of distinction. You, you know what else? Go get my ring. You, you know the one, the, the ring that denotes authority. Go get my ring and, and put it on my son's finger that he might be restored to his proper place in the family. Get, get sandals for my son's feet. Only slaves go barefoot around here. Go get sandals for my son's feet. This is my boy and he has to have sandals. Lastly, go and kill the fattened calf. You know the one. 
the one we've been saving for the most special of special occasions. Go kill that calf, for my lost son has come home. It's time to celebrate. Friends, if you ever wondered what your loved ones who have gone before you are doing in heaven, you get a glimpse of it here and says they're, they're partying. Go, go way back to verse 7, the, par- the lost sheep parable, verse 7. Verse 7 says, I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 sin- pers- righteous persons excuse me, who do not need to repent. Did you catch the last part of that? Than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is Jesus using irony towards the Pharisees. You know, they thought they were righteous. They thought they had earned their righteousness by being obedient to the law and doing the things that we talked about earlier. And they couldn't have been more wrong. We see, at the, we see this at the end of the story. I, I don't need to describe to you anymore the thoughts of the Pharisees or the teachers of the law concerning divine mercy of the prodigal son. There, there's no need to speculate because Jesus himself puts the Pharisees in the story as the other son. The, the one I like to call the religious son. The older religious son in the story represents the Pharisees. Follow along, beginning in verse 25, it says, the older son, I'm going to paraphrase, the older son was returning from the field, and when he came near the house, he heard dancing and music. All, I don't know what kind of party this was, but I mean, when you can hear the dancing and music, it must have been off the hook. Things must have been pretty crazy. But anyway, the, the, the older son calls to his servant, and he says, what in the world is all the commotion about? And the servant replies, your brother has returned and your father has killed the fattened calf in celebration of his return. Immediately the older brother becomes angry and refuses to go into the party. Instead he remains outside, throwing somewhat of a a pity party for himself, if you will. What happens in verse 28 is really interesting. For the second time in the parable, we see the father going out. This time the father goes out, the first time the father went out to his lost son, now the father goes out a second time to his religious son. And he doesn't just go out. He pleads with him to come in. But he's instantly met with aggression. The religious son shouts, Look! Whoa. How about a little respect? Even the prodigal son said, Father. Look! All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet yet you never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your prosperity with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. You, you get a real sense of the religious son is, is jealous of this party that's taken place. He's jealous and he feels cheated. So much so that he doesn't even refer to the younger son as his brother in verse 30. But rather he says, this son of yours. And, and at first glance you would say, well, he does have a pretty good reason to be upset. But then you begin to dig and you begin to ask questions like, why wasn't the older son at the party already? Well, why didn't he at least know about it? It seemed like he was the last to know, and he found out about the party when he stumbled onto it. And, and why did the older son consider the work of the father to be slaving? And, and call the father's task orders? You, you know as well as I do that the father we're speaking about has a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. Could it, could it be that the religious son was so burdened because he was trying to win the father's approval by his own works? Could it be that the religious son was trying to create a righteousness of his own apart from that which the father extended to the young son? Could it be that the religious son was just that, all religion and no relationship? 
Yeah, he stayed home, but he was prodigal as well. He was just too chicken to leave. Have you ever felt the, the way the older son did? Have you ever felt like you're the one putting in all the time? Like you're the one doing all the work but getting none of the rewards? I know, I know I have. I, we used to be Dish Network subscribers. We're not anymore. If you are, that's okay. Um, but I, I used to feel this way, like the, the more older religious son. Every time I would see those Dish Network commercials, they would say, for nude subscribers only, you, you know the kind, I'm sure you've seen them, they go something like this, sign up now and enjoy three months of NFL Red Zone, NHL Center Ice, Stars Movie Package, all for signing up, just for free. You receive these things. And then there's this disclaimer at the end. It says, this package is limited to new dish, work, nish, <laughs> new dish network subscribers only. Current dish network subscribers are not eligible. And I would think to myself, current subscribers are not eligible. Are you kidding me? Really? I want NFL Red Zone, I want NHL Center Ice, I want the Hopper. Like, uh, I've been paying my bill month after month, year after year, and this is what I get? You give a new customer all the perks that I want and that I deserve? Interestingly enough, a few years ago I had to call Dish Network because one of our remote controls quit working. And, and to my dismay, the lady on the other side of the line, uh, other side of the line said it would be like $30 to replace it. And I'm like, $30 to replace it? And I said to her, it, but it's not my fault, it's broke. We, we've been customers for so long, it's just old. And she said, you know what, sir? It does show here in your records that you have been a faithful customer for a long time. And, and we, will, we will cover the cost of that remote control and the cost of shipping and handling. And furthermore, you know, those, those packages that they talk about, you know, oftentimes we would get those for free every now and again. We would get free movies occasionally, and we would get free sports channels occasionally. They, they were treating me well. But I, I just couldn't get past the, why is somebody else getting what I think I deserve? How, how does this relate? Be, because that was the thought of the older son. Why was the younger son getting the party? Where's my party? I never left. I never squandered your money. I do the chores you give me. I put in the time. I deserve the party. After all, I've earned it. Why does he get the free pass? Why does he get grace when I have to work so hard for it? See the connection. That was the thought of the Pharisees. I memorize scripture. I tithe everything. I obey the Sabbath. I pray. I fast. I keep the law. I deserve to be called righteous. After all, I've earned it. I've earned my righteousness, the Pharisees say. Friends, if, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, hear this. And I, I shared this with you the last time I, I preached. Everything that you have and everything that you are is a result of grace. Everything that you have and everything that you are is a result of grace. What do you have that you haven't been given? And if you've been given it, why do you boast? We've been given grace upon grace, yet we want to point a finger at everyone else and say, what have you done to earn it? The story comes to a close with the father trying one last time to encourage the older son. He says, my son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because his brother yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And that's the end of the story. And it seems like such an abrupt end of the story. But might I suggest an ending that I heard one time in a sermon by Pastor John MacArthur. And this isn't me adding to Scripture because we see the end of this story throughout the New Testament. So the, the parable doesn't say this, but, it, but really the ending to the story is, 
is throughout the Gospels. Here's the ending to this story. The, the older son, burning with anger towards the father for the grace that he extended to the younger son, certainly jealous of the undeserved party that he threw him, overcome with hatred and blinded by their own self-righteousness, by his own self-righteousness, the older son kills the father. You see, the, the Pharisees were, were overcome with anger towards Jesus for the love and grace that he extended to sinners. The Pharisees were overcome with hatred towards Jesus because he rebuked them constantly for their own self-righteousness. So they killed him. They, they made false claims against Jesus. They gave him a shoddy trial and they had him crucified. The older son, the religious son, killed the father. A prodigal son, a religious son, and a loving father. And so what do we take away from this story this morning? Perhaps you can identify with, with one of the sons. Maybe you are or have been like a religious son who, who's prideful of his own good works. The, the son who believes his, he's righteous because he somehow earned his righteousness by himself. The son who, like 75-year-old Janice P. Pewwarmer, who's been coming to the same church and sitting in the same spot for, for 75 years, and, and when a new believer comes through the door and you know, sits in her seat, look out. You know? Maybe you've been, think that you've somehow prayed enough or fasted enough or read your Bible enough or teach Sunday school enough to be accepted. No, it's not about that. Not about anything that we can do in and of ourselves. If you, if you somehow think that, that any of that makes you more righteous than the vilest of sinners who repent and has offered the free gift of grace, then you're dead wrong. The Bible says there's no one righteous, not one. Our righteousness is not our own. It's, it's, it's imputed to us by the price that Jesus paid when he bore our sins on the cross. You can't work hard enough nor keep the commandments well enough or be a good enough person to earn your way to heaven. Our good works will never make us righteous before a holy God. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Maybe you can relate better today, this morning, to the, the prodigal son. We've all certainly been that prodigal son at some point, lost in our own sin. The Bible says that we're all sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And if that's you this morning, lost and hurting and, and lusting after the scraps that pigs eat, I'm, I'm here to tell you today, I'm here to remind you today that, that there's a Father who's out there searching for you. And, and He's keeping a close watch from a distance, waiting for you to turn from your sinful ways and to come home. The, the Father's arms are outstretched. They're ready. He's ready for you to run. He's ready to run to you. He's ready to embrace you and he's ready to kiss you. And and I want you to make no no mistake about it. The father doesn't need you. Absolutely not. He's got 99 other sheep in the pen and he doesn't need them either. He doesn't need you, but he wants you. He desires you. He longs for you just, just as you are. Pig stench and all. He desires you. Don't you get that? Romans 5a says, But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father doesn't expect you to clean yourself up. He doesn't expect you to clean your own pig stench off of you. You can't clean your own pig stench off of you. We can't clean ourselves up. Jesus cleans us up. 
God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. And on the cross at Calvary, he took your pig stench and he took my pig stench. And in return, he robed us in his righteousness. On that cross, Jesus took upon himself all that we are, that we might gain all that he is. And you know what's even cooler? In in doing this, in making this decision, he doesn't want to make us his hired hand. This is the greatest news. Because we can never work off the debt we owed him. Rather, he wants to make us his children. And he wants to throw us a party. In the the words of Max Locato, and I'll close with this, mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. Grace threw him a party. Mercy gave the prodigal son a second chance. Grace threw him a party. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we just praise you for this reminder of of you, God, as a, a loving father. Who sent his son Jesus to to pay the penalty that that we deserved, God, to, to stand in the place of sinners at Calvary, to endure the wrath that was ours. God, every one of us was like that prodigal son who who basically slapped the father in the face, who who spit in the father's face, who who turned and went their own way, and, and was a sinner and was separated from you, a holy God. But God, you being rich in mercy and by the great love with which you you loved us, made us alive together again with Jesus Christ. And we just praise you for that this morning, that, that you sent your own son to pay the price that we couldn't pay. God, forgive us for thinking that somehow our righteous deeds will amount to anything on that day. God, we praise you that it's all about grace. Grace upon grace, Lord. God, thank you for the reminder this morning. I do pray that if any among us would be perhaps hearing this story for the first time, that this, that this Father of love and grace desires to have a relationship with us, that, that they would seek myself out or one of the elders out in the church and that we might pray with them, Lord. I just pray that you would do a work in hearts that are among us this morning in reminding us the costliness of the grace and the freeness of the grace. We love you in your son's name. Amen.